All of Paul's letters in the New Testament, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and some others, um, they're all basically pastoring through social distance. He's talking to these other churches that are much farther away through a letter. And uh, so doing life through social distancing is not something new, although it might be new for us, um, but it still means God can work through it. And what we're going to learn is like, we're going to hear God's words to us today through a pastor socially distanced pastoring a church back then, which is kind of an amazing thing. And Paul, when he's talking to Philippians, Philippians is all about joy. It's all about joy. Now, the reason why you write to someone about joy isn't because they have a lot of it. It's because they need more of it. The church at Philippi was living in discontent. And I'm not even going to have to give examples to be like, I wonder if any of you feel discontented right now. Of course you do. Everyone does. You would probably feel that anyway. But then add the, you know, the past uh, 18 months going on, and that's just kind of our life. So the question is, how do we live if we, if we feel discontented, which we probably do in some way, and you definitely will in the future because it's a human experience, how do we go through that? How, how can we go through that well? How can we be fully formed humans going through that discontent well? Um, so we aren't going to go deep into the situation of what Paul is writing into at the Church of Philippi, except for what you need to know is that, is that right there. They're not living completely contented lives. They were discontent. Now, discontent, if left unchecked, uh, can lead to all sorts of bad things. can lead to pride, can lead to depression, can lead to uh, self-centeredness, can lead to just kind of like a life of moaning. But our discontent doesn't have to lead us there. In fact, I think any time I hear of a reason why someone doesn't like the church or someone doesn't like Christianity, because they personally experience some level of discontent. I get it. But what do we do with that? Our discontent doesn't have to lead us to those things because really our discontent is the seedbed of hope. Where we start in discontent, that's a seedbed of hope. And there might be no better context for our prayers than our discontent. We pray about what disturbs us. Discontent is, is a helpful thing because it tells us something is wrong, but if we, if, we don't, if we go somewhere good with it, it can actually be a good thing. Now, um, this letter was written to a church a long time ago in a place none of us have probably ever visited. Maybe some of us have. Um, but it doesn't take much to see how even though uh, time and geography might be quite different, we as humans are actually kind of similar. And our world is kind of similar too to this place that was, um, to these people who were living 2,000 years ago. So when we're discontent, as I said earlier, it tells us something is wrong. It tells us that the world is wrong or maybe that we're wrong or maybe both of those things are true. And when we harbor that to ourselves, we become our own little cesspool. Kind of, we think about it and it just kind of drags us down. There's kind of no way out if we harbor that ourselves. But our discontent is made for something more than just moaning to our mates. It's meant to bring us closer to God. And these verses in Philippians will teach us to do how to do just that. So here's the thing with Christianity. Through Jesus, we can live a life of flourishing and meaning even in our discontent. That's what Jesus gives us. That's a gift that Jesus gives us. Every human will experience discontent. Only those who follow Jesus will be able to flourish and get meaning through that discontent. And through him, we're led from our discontent to a greater love, and that greater love leads us to a greater life. So we're just going to focus on three things this week. I know three things is a typical thing for a sermon, right? Hey, next week it's five, so let's get ready. Mixing things up, getting crazy. Uh, three things that we're going to talk about that uh, Paul prays for. One, that our love will flourish. Paul prays that we would know what is best, and Paul prays that we would be filled with God. 
And as Paul is praying for these things, he's not just, again, he's not just praying these things, he's praying them, but he's writing them to a church to tell them how to pray. So that's what we're going to learn, and we're going to learn how to pray uh, those three particular things. So let's start with that first one, that love is going to flourish, and that's in verse 9. And if you have a Bible or an app or whatever, just kind of have it handy. We're going to be referring back to these three verses here. I mean, these three verses are jam-packed, so we're spending the whole sermon just on these three verses. The first thing uh, that we should pray is that our love should flourish, that our love will flourish. Now, love will flourish when our head and our gut get married. When they have a wedding, that's when our love will flourish. Our thoughts and our emotions. And what that leads to is having more love, like a larger quantity of love, but also a better quality of love itself. We get more of it and a better version of it. And how do we do this? Well, what does verse 9 say? Paul is saying this, this is my prayer, that your love, he's talking to a church, that your love may abound more and more. And then he says these words at the end, in knowledge and depth of insight. In knowledge and depth of insight. This is like your head and your gut, your thoughts and your feelings. Uh, And abound is this word that means uh, an overflow, like an abundance. Something that will flourish is something that will grow like beyond what's necessary. But here's the thing with love. It requires relationships. You can't have love and not have relationships. Well, I guess you can, it just wouldn't really go anywhere. It just doesn't, love is meant for people. It's meant for other people. Love requires a relationship. And you can't just kind of do what these verses say on your own. You need a context. The context is a community of people. You can't do this by yourself. You need other people. And for the love for each other to flourish means that love we have will in itself be better and there's going to be more of it through growing in knowledge and testing our emotions. So let's get into those two things uh, that Paul brings up there in verse 9. Knowledge and depth of insight. First, knowledge. How do we abound in knowledge? We have to use our heads to understand God's word. That's like what we have to do. We have to understand it. And that's what the prophets did. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. That's what all of them told us to do. So it's really not a mystery. I wonder how I can grow. It's not a mystery at all. We read this. This This is how we grow in knowledge. We read this. If you don't want to grow in knowledge, and if you want to silence God, make sure this thing stays shut and never opens again. If you want to listen from God, you open this up and you hear his words. He has all these words. He's speaking to us today. It's not even an um, intellectual problem. It's not even like a, a problem of our will, like we're just lazy, although, you know, I am. Maybe you guys are too. Uh, it's actually, it's really a spiritual problem when our love lacks knowledge. It's a spiritual issue. Our thoughts aren't set on God, so we don't seek Him. That's a spiritual problem. And it's actually quite simple. If we don't make time for God during our day, then what does that say about how you relate to Him? Just like any relationship. It means you don't really care about Him that much. Don't be surprised if your faith is shallow, if you only hang around the shallow end. We must dig deep to unearth the mysteries and the meanings of our faith. And this definitely requires our head. Not just our head by itself, though, because we're not just walking heads on sticks. We have also, we're a full, holy, horn, fully formed people. And when Paul talks about depth of insight, he's getting more into like that gut feeling, that, um, that emotional feeling. And the way that we grow in depth of insight is to test those feelings. If God has given you a strong emotional life, you might be tempted to believe that everything you feel is actually how reality is. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not true. How do we know? We have to test our feelings. Or maybe you're on the other side and your emotions are kind of like on life support. They're barely barely alive. Like, does this person even have an emotional life? We don't even know. It would do you good to stop and maybe ask God to grow you in that area as well because that's a limitation. That's not being fully formed. And in all of this, remember, 
uh, this is written to a church, uh, to a people, not to an individual. So you can't do this on your own. In order to test, you can't test your emotions yourself. I mean, that's a helpful thing to be reflective, but you're always going to be limited. You always have to bring other people in if you want to test your emotions. And this is why community is not an option. It's not like, oh, that's kind of like a good idea. It's a necessity. It, it has to happen. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do this thing that Paul's praying for us to do. And right now, surely, one of the more specific boundaries to community is just being present with each other, just being with each other, having each other over for dinner or meeting somebody up for whatever. That's a difficult thing right now because we've come out of 18 months of being, you know, not being allowed to do that. So, of course, that's going to affect us. And maybe just like a quick side note, um, every single pastor I know, and myself, I would include myself in that group of people, um, lockdown, I think, has multiplied how we live by our feelings because we're not with people very often and because the only thing we have to go on is kind of often is our gut reactions. And we've, we've learned to rely on those gut reactions. Often we think that gut reaction equals reality, which isn't always true. Sometimes that's true and sometimes it's worth a check, but it's not always going to equal um, that is always going to equal truth. We think, oh, what will this person think? What they mean when they said that, when they did that? You know, test your feelings because they're, you're broken. You're not perfect. Everyone say, oh, I'm not perfect. Your feelings are included in that not perfect part. Some of your feelings are right. Some of them are not. And the best way, really, for us to test our feelings is to talk to someone who's, get a, who's mature, who you feel safe with, especially if it's a really difficult thing, and who won't just say, yeah, I know, yeah, isn't it difficult? But who will also be like, let's bring this to God. Steer you to Jesus. Bring you to Jesus. Because people, that's great and helpful, but it's two flawed people interacting. Unless we bring God into that, we're really not going to get to the truth of the, of the situation. And Paul here, the, the, really the, the context here in this letter, uh, he's praying to the, uh, the church here in Philippi that they guard against what initially might feel like a good idea, but may not be really a, a wise thing to do. Maybe something that's a bit naive or sentimental. So if we take the context of Philippi into mind, um, when we think, oh, that would be a really good thing if we were to do this or a kind thing to do this or a good way to spend my time or my money, one thing that's helpful, if there's any question at all, maybe there is, is, just ask another Christian about it or ask someone in your missional community or someone else in the church. Uh, it's really kind of that easy. Seeking wisdom from other people is really, it's really easy. You just ask a question and see what they're going to say. If they're believers, what they're doing is actually seeking the Holy Spirit with you. So it's not just like human-level interaction. What both people are doing as they're talking to each other is both of them are asking God to come and bring, to be, bring his presence to bear on whatever they're talking about. That's an amazing thing. And God has made us to live in community because he lives in community. God speaks into our lives through other people. He loves to do things that way. Why? I don't know, but that's what he does. He could speak audibly into each one of our brains right now, and I wouldn't even have to be here. But yet God has said, no, I want them to create a community. There's lots of reasons for that. Why he chose to do it that way, I don't know. Doesn't seem to work out well all the time, and yet here we are. And if you're part of Redeemer, this is the primary environment that God is choosing to use to speak to you. It's also why we spend so much time and harp on missional communities, because we know like one Sunday is just not enough. The voice of the gospel has to be louder than all the other voices out there. So, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is the one who works to keep our head and our gut connected and connected to himself. In Ephesians 1, and we're going to get to this in another sermon, but just a little, little taster for you. Uh, this is Paul again writing to a different church. says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
so you may know him better. Now we're going to get, uh, I think it's two weeks from now, we're going to get more into what wisdom and revelation mean. But the, this is the spirit of God. This is God himself working through people so that we might know God better. It's like this positive circle. God works through us so that we can get God to work more through us so we can learn more about him. It's a crazy thing that just kind of happens over and over and over again. And underneath and through it all is the work of God himself. The work of God himself. What an amazing thing and what an easy and simple thing to get involved with. Let's not miss out on that. Now some of us might be more head people. Some of us might be more gut. I know when I started um, dating Christina, I had no idea what an emotional life even was. Uh, when I met this, this girl and I was like, what in the world is life like that? It was crazy. Um, but she's really helped kind of bring that emotional life from me out into the open, which has been scary for both of us, I'm sure. Uh, what Jesus wants, what he creates through his spirit are wholehearted people, not just heads on sticks, not just hearts on sticks, wholehearted people who are going to bring everything to bear uh, in this world where our head and our gut are connected and they work together without tension. There really need not be tension. And when there is, that's, a, that's an opportunity to pray and to ask someone else to bring someone else in. And Jesus talks about this wholeness in John 4. Again, this comes up in the, um, when what we're doing in missional communities, the practical prayer course, uh, where Jesus in John 4 says this, yet a time is coming and now, uh, and uh, has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And spirit and truth is like a wholeheartedness. Is a person fully alive is when God is fully at work in a person. And wholeness comes when our head and our gut get married. The spirit is the one who works to make our hearts whole so that our love will flourish. And when he does, we'll have more love and a better quality, quality of it as well. And so what we learn from Paul here in, in Philippians 1 is we ought to pray that love will flourish for each other. Now the next one we get here in verse 10 is to pray that we might know what is best. The second thing we pray for is that we might know what is best. And this is a product of when our heads and our heart are married. What happens is we get to go to, to basically to, to discern. We pray to know what is best. To discern means to know what's essential. Not just good, what's good or what's a good idea, but what's like the best thing to do. I think all of us probably are, every single day have a multitude of good options in front of us. What's the best thing to do in that day? I don't know, but God does. That's why we need to pray that we might grow in this way. Uh, in fact, like discernment was really, for the Greek philosophers, it was a thing they wrote about all the time, discernment. It was like a way, how can we determine, like, is this better or is this better or is that better? Or what's better? Like Plutarch, um, uh, Plato, Ptolemaeus, who also starts with a P. I feel like we've really missed, a modern era has really missed out on silent P kind of names. I can't think of, I was trying to, I couldn't think of any. Like, Pateri, and then that's not really, what am I even talking Pfeiffer, that's a, that's a surname. Yeah, we're getting close here. Well, anyway, to, 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 to discern means to know what's excellent, like the best. What's the best? I mean, whenever I Google something, I don't want to Google restaurant in Manchester. I want best restaurant in Manchester. I don't want to waste my 10 quid on a subpar number two meal. I want number one. So what has real consequence in this world? What has a weight to it? That's what's excellent. Now, there's so many things out there, so many good things out there. How can we know not just what's good, 
but what's best, what truly matters, what's really gonna have lasting meaning. I mean, our lives are so short. I wanna spend, spend a little blip of my life on what actually matters the most. I don't wanna waste my time. So what, what, what's Paul saying here? You may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So this requires knowledge. We've already talked about knowledge and it comes up again here. To know something requires us to at least have the information to know what's best. We need some kind of, our brains have to work. To know what is excellent, what is best, requires us to listen to what God says in his word. And by default, I think what we think matters is what our culture tells us is good. Sometimes that matches up with the Bible, sometimes it doesn't. How are we gonna know? We have to read the Bible to actually know what does God actually care about? We're gonna hear all sorts of things. God's word must be louder than all the other messages that get constantly blasting to our ears and our eyes and our hearts. So there's knowledge. There's also hope here. Uh, he's saying what's discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's this future thing that Paul's talking about here, a future orientation. It's a future hope that, as Paul's praying, is hoping will crash into our present, that what is going to go on out there, like sometime in the future, will change how we live now. And when we're discontent, we're often overly focused on what's going right now. We have blinders on and we can't think of what's going on five minutes from now, let alone like at the end of days. But if we lift our eyes a bit, we get just a little glimpse of the story that we would miss out on otherwise. The church is a people who are going somewhere. We're, we're going somewhere. We have a trajectory to us. We look forward to the new heavens and earth when everything will be made right. Everything including ourselves because we're not right and we need to be made right. But what we are called to do now in the present is to live into the future. Now, that's, even as I wrote that, I was like, that sounds like some kind of sci-fi tagline, living into the, in the present, living into the future. But that's exactly what kind of Paul's talking about here, that we need to live as if the future is real because it is real and live as if that's true. If you follow Jesus, he's given you his spirit. You're pure and blameless. Fundamentally, it's who you are. Yeah, you mess up. Yeah, you're not perfect. But fundamentally, your core identity, your core personality is someone who is now pure and blameless through what God has done. In the new heavens and earth, we will experience our identity in its fullness. There's not gonna be any kind of like, yes, but, it'll be just yes. That's it. That's who we, we are, be completely pure, completely blameless. Can you imagine what it must, must like live like for five minutes to be pure and blameless and completely? We don't know. One day we will know. That is actually coming. But now there's a difference and how we live out being pure and blameless now because it's a struggle, it's difficult, there's, it's, there's thorns. Our true selves are the ones that God has created and will one day fully reshape in the way that we're called to be. That's a reality. And the more we live as if that's true, the more that will help us discern what is best, will help us see, oh, that is excellent because I know that's what I'm going towards. The more we live into that reality, the more we enjoy this life that God's given us because it's who we really are. Living any other way is just living as some kind of false self. A complete mask covering all of who we are. That's a bit of hope, but then also, lastly, it really does mean living it out. It may, to discern what is best, to be pure and blameless requires like some kind of action to discern means it requires some kind of action. So to truly know what, it, what really matters requires one to actually live it out. And why do we do that? Just to know these things? No, so that we may be pure and blameless. It kind of works, it works with, its, with itself. If you don't live what is best, 
You just don't know it. Living, knowing requires a lived, un, a lived knowledge. You can know things about what is best, but if you don't actually live it, you don't really know it. I remember when I first um, started playing saxophone, I really wanted to learn this technique called altissimo, which is like basically like super crazy dumb high notes that all mush into each other. You can't really make them out, but it's like in stratosphere kind of super high notes. I was in an email thread with a uh, professional saxophonist, and I was asking him about like which pads to press down, like exactly what, where do you put your fingers, and how do you do, like move your mouth and things like that. And he gave me all the information. Um, but he also said, and this like crushed me as a 14-year-old who just wanted the information. He also said, look. This is, to do this requires a lot more than just information and technique. You have to practice. You have to work at it. You have to get a feel for it. I was like, oh, I don't want a feel for it. I just want to do it. I just want to make these crazy high notes, you know, and impress my friends or whatever the thing is. That's the kind of nerd friends I hung out with, you know, altissimo notes. Um, I was like, just give me the information. I wanted the quick fix. And of course, that's the same for all of us, if given the option of the quick fix. That's what we'll take every time. But often the quick fix isn't really a quick and it's not even really a fix. We all just want the info to move on with our busy lives, but it's not until we put the information into practice and live it out and actually get a feel for it that we truly know it. We need a feel for it. So knowing means doing. Knowing about is different than knowing. Knowing about is like a Wikipedia page. Like there's the information. Knowing is, is being with and getting a feel for it. And just a note, I, I mean, I talked about practicing I think practice is a really good word for how we should live the Christian life. Because in practice, no one's required to be perfect. No one expects anyone to be perfect. But you just show up and you do the thing. You play your saxophone horribly and you know, your parents will deal with it. Uh, you can't develop a feel for something without practice. Practice is something done over and over and over and over again. It's not amazingly fun all the time. Sometimes it is, especially when there's like a breakthrough. But breakthroughs don't come every day because you're just practicing. You shouldn't have the expectation of a breakthrough every day because you're just practicing. And in practice, nobody is expected to be perfect all the time. It gives you a freedom to just mess up. But if you don't show up with the instrument and do the thing, you'll never get there. You won't experience that freedom if you don't even give it a go. And maybe a small example of this for us now is inviting people who aren't yet believers into your home or garden or wherever for a meal. Those who are around in your life, who are on your prayer card. I mean, we talked about how um, Kathleen started the service, and there's a thing here said, in Manchester, as in heaven. She was talking about how we want people to know about who Jesus is. Like, that's not going to happen if we don't hang out with people. If we don't know them, not know about them, but know them. Get a feel for them, and know how to love them, and serve them well. It's a regular practice, and that's how the early church worked. That's how Paul talks about living the Christian life. Uh, and that's how we're called to live. Now, it's one thing, again, to know about what is, that this is good. And another thing to maybe know you should do it, and maybe that's what churches are really good at, is we tell you what you should do and then don't really do very much and then you just feel super guilty because you didn't do the thing the guy said on Sunday. Well, that's why we have this, we've tried hard to set up our church in a way that will allow people as easy and as simply as possible to follow through with the things we say up here. Because we, we want obedience. We don't, don't want just people to grow in knowledge and that's it. We want people to grow wholeheartedly. So those who are around in your life and who are hopefully on, um, on your prayer card, if you haven't um, done one of these yet, praying for these people kind of every day, uh, not just you know, once or twice having them around your table, but just have it be a regular practice, getting to know them. Then you'll actually really know how to pray for them. And it's one thing, again, it's one thing to know it's good. It's another thing to feel guilty about knowing you should do it, but you're not really doing it. When you actually do it, it's not 
amazing all the time. But if you don't do it, you're, you're going to miss out on the joys of conversations you would have never gotten into to begin with. I was just talking with Kathleen, she'll maybe talk about this later, about uh, the missional community that, that we're a part of, and she's like, I would have never chosen this on my own. How, like, it's kind of crazy how God gets us into these kind of situations. You don't know the blessings of God showing up in ways that only he can do if you don't just try it, give it a go. You won't be surprised by the conversations about faith unless you live it out. You won't be surprised about how exerting energy by having someone in your home, which, I mean, that's difficult now, right? At the end, when someone leaves, I'm like, oh, oh, that was great, but I'm tired now. But there's a level of, that is a good feeling. It's like when, when you've done a really good hard day's work, at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, I'm tired for a good reason. I'm not tired because I sat on the couch watching Netflix for eight hours. I'm tired because we hung out and we chatted through things and I'm still getting used to chatting through things. Um, but it's a, it's a good kind of feeling. And I get it, you know, not everyone is in a position to have uh, people in their home. That's completely fine. There's, there's so many ways to practice hospitality. You can't throw a stone from here without hitting two or three coffee shops and good restaurants here anyway. So there's many, there are many ways to practice this Christian uh, reality of radical hospitality. But you won't know what is best if you don't practice. It has to be part of what we do. And so we pray to know what is best because we don't have that in us. And this is also why um, we were going through the practical prayer course in our missional communities. Uh, missional communities are groups that meet throughout the week um, because we can't pray and be all the things that the Bible says even to this amount of people. We have to break it down a little bit. Um, and so what we've been doing in, in tandem with these Sunday services is going through the how. Like actually, how are we praying? What are, maybe people need some help in, in words to use or, or even techniques or things like, oh, I just don't even know how to start a prayer life or I've had a prayer life. I just kind of need a little bit of like a boost to get somewhere. We're chatting through these things and learning together in our missional communities. So we pray that love will flourish, that we'll know what is best. Uh, and we also pray, lastly, that it will be filled with God. We'll be filled with God. So every person is filled with something. You might be like that guy up there. He's filled with a lot of hot air. just keeps on going on and on. We're all filled with something. But when we're discontent, we're filled with sadness. We're filled with exhaustion. We're filled with just kind of wanting apathy, not want to do anything, all sorts of things. Paul's prayer is that we would be filled with the products of living a righteous life. That, that would, be, that would fill, up, fill our lives up with what comes out of living the good life. This is in uh, the last verse here in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we're filled with the fruit of right, the product of righteous, of righteous living. Um, what righteousness is, is just is just. just. Uh, well, often when, we, when someone says righteousness, they automatically think in their head self-righteousness, which is the opposite of righteousness because that's not just. It's just, it's just a righteous life is a good life, a life where you love other people well. It sees things that ought not to be and attempts to make it right. It sees uh, things that um, ought to be and aren't going on and attempts to, to fulfill it in some way. The product of a just life is confidence because you know, you know what, I, I do serve people well. I do love people well. The conf- the, uh, another product of a just life is resilience because you've been through difficult things. You can go through the smaller things. The ability to rest at the end of a day because you know you've poured your life out in a good way. But not getting angry about the wrong things and getting angry about the right ones. It's a life well lived. It's fullness. There are fulfilling uh, relationships in a life of righteousness. There's a closeness to God and his heart in a life of righteousness. 
There is a contentedness in the world, but not an apathy of being able to be satisfied even when there's still work to do at the end of the day. That's what the good life looks like. This is what every church should be known for. Like we should be the first to speak out against racism, the first to speak out against broken systems, like the prison system, for example, that we know about from people in our church that keep marginalized people marginalized. And the first to speak for those who don't have a voice. A community that welcomes those who have been wronged as well as those who have wronged others. Oh, we're this kind of church. These are the kind of people Jesus has his arms welcome for everybody, regardless of any kind of background. There's no room for self-righteousness if righteousness is, is full, if it's filled up. At least I'm not a racist. At least I'm not a this. At least I'm not a that. Whatever the people, you know, whatever's worse in your life. The people who follow God and were self-righteous in their faith, those are the people that Jesus had the most harsh words for. And that's, he hasn't changed his mind on that. He's still, he's still there. He would not think twice in calling them out. But for those who were humble, that told, that told him, oh, there's parts of broken darkness in my heart, all sorts of parts, and I humbly come to you, Lord. Those are the people that he never had a harsh word for. Never. Jesus would never turn away someone like that. And through the cross, we all see ourselves as equal. We are all the oppressed. We are all the oppressors. Now, each one of us has experienced either one kind of more or less in our lives, but really when it comes to how we relate to God, we are all the oppressed. We're all the oppressors. We have rejected him. We're all the same. A life of righteousness means you give of yourself for someone else's good. You give up something for someone else's sake. See, righteousness is actually it's a form of generosity when you think about it. And generosity really only comes from sacrifice. If you give from what's kind of leftover or extra, that's not, no one really says being generous. You might be nice, but you're not really being generous. If you're giving of something that feels like a, a, a sacrifice from yourself, whether that's uh, relational space, whether that's emotional space with someone else, whether that's your time, like your, your diary you keep open so that other people who you know, can, can be involved in your life, it could be your home if that's a possibility. It, it, it includes your money and how you give money to other people or what, how you spend your money. But you sacrifice maybe say like some of your relational space so that someone else can have something they wouldn't have had otherwise, which is like a nice meal with friends or maybe a friend, a conversation where you get to listen and the other person gets to speak. Now we would all like to live this way, or maybe we would all like to be surrounded by other people who are like that for us. That sounds a little bit like heaven. And it should, because that's what it's like. Where people want to hear from you, and they want to give of themselves because they love you. Not because of what you do for them, but just because of literally who you are. But if you've tried this at all, it's difficult. This isn't easy. It's not an easy life. Uh, and in fact, more than difficult. This is impossible unless the Holy Spirit, which God himself, is working in your life. If God is not working in your life, you'll try really hard, you'll burn out, and then you're just kind of like, yeah, I tried that once, it didn't really work, it's not my thing, it's someone else's thing. The Holy Spirit has to be working in your life in order to sustain you. No mere human has ever done this. You are not the exception. I'm sure you're great, but you're not the exception. Where does this good life come from? God here in Philippians is telling us it comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through him and it's for his glory and for his praise. It's only when we are filled with God himself that we can live in a way that God himself has meant for us to live. Only when we are filled with God can we live in the way that he's called us to live. 
required and commanded us to live even. Now how in the world does Jesus do this in us? Just as the Father sent the Son into our world, the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to all who follow Jesus. So when you follow him, God himself resides in you. See, that's bonkers. We probably, if you've been around the church, you've heard that loads of times, it should blow your mind. What does that mean? Get a theologian to tell you what that means. They won't. They're like, I think I know what this means. It's a crazy, mysterious kind of thing, but it's true. What does that mean? I don't know other than the fact that you are fundamentally changed. You become a new, a new being. So when you follow him, God himself resides in you. He's the one who's filling you up now. Nothing less than the spirit of Jesus himself. You are God's renovation project, and he's got some plans. He's not renting. He's bought the house. He's staying. He's not leaving. He's there. When we first believe, we're filled with the Spirit. That's a one-time kind of action. We're filled with the Spirit. He takes up residence inside, becomes the most important part of who you are. Even if you try and stuff it away or run away, he's still, he's the most important part of who you are. And he's not renting again. He's, he's bought the house. That's a one-time thing, but there's also an ongoing action as well. And we see this especially in the book of Acts. Uh, in the Bible, people pray, the Holy Spirit fills them, and that enables them to be bold and speak the gospel so that others will be filled. The reason why the Spirit fills people isn't for you to have a good emotion or you to feel good, although that's, that can be great, but it's so that other people will be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit fills you so that other people will be filled. That's, that's what he does. It's what we see in the Bible over and over and over again. God fills Christians with the Holy Spirit so that others will be filled with him because God loves other people. It's so other-orientated. It's not even about us. And there is an um, exciting and dangerous prayer to pray. If you ask the Spirit to fill you, then ask you, who's that for? Spirit, fill me with your Spirit, God. I, I want to... I wanna, I wanna, feel that closeness. I want to um, understand your presence in a way that maybe I didn't like five minutes ago. And when you do, who's that for? It's not just for you. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's an awesome, exciting prayer to pray, but it is dangerous because you know, you're going to get into conversations you wouldn't have otherwise because God is leading you. You're not leading yourself. It's like your heart is a half, goal, half full glass of water. You follow Jesus, but by yourself, you won't clench your thirst let alone anyone else's. So you pray that you might be filled by the Holy Spirit. And often that means emptying your heart of all the gunk that's wasting up all that space anyway to begin with. And when the Holy Spirit fills us, it's always in abundance. It's like a server who comes to fill your glass. He keeps pouring and pouring. It gets really awkward because it's like all over the table. You're like, that's enough. Thanks. I got enough water. It's like, oh, no, no, it's not for you. It's for this guy over here. It's for her. And that's what it means for love to flourish. Instead of just having love, for love to flourish is an overflow. We know what is best when we live into that kind of love, have that kind of life. And the way we can do this, the only way, is to be filled with God himself, the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't follow Jesus yet, the first step is to surrender and ask him to take over. He will send his spirit and you will become new. God never turns anyone away. He will send his spirit and you become new. You'll actually be able to live this way even in these small three verses we talked about. If We've only looked at three verses. If 10% of people in Manchester lived out these three verses, it would completely change the city, completely revolutionize the city. It would be so incredibly different. It would be indiscernible from where it is now, a small amount of people living this way. These are only three verses in a Bible with lots and lots of different kinds of verses. The only way we can do that is if the Holy Spirit fills us up. The only way we're able to live this way 
regardless of whatever circumstances you're in, content in some ways, discontent in some ways, whatever it might be, is through the Holy Spirit working through us. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, we uh, can enter in this, into this kind of living by not just surrendering once and then going about our day, but having a lifetime of surrendering over and over and over again. A life of surrender. A surrender to his love that's always going to lead us to flourishing. Because every time we surrender and ask him to fill us up, he overflows our cup over and over again. His ways will always lead us to the good life, to be filled by him instead of whatever is second best. And we can do this because in Jesus' discontent, Jesus prayed to the Father. When he was particularly busy, when he was tired, when he was doing ministry from sunup to sundown, not even having time to eat, he got away to pray. When facing his death, he prayed. In the middle of his public torture in front of everybody, he prayed. And now as the resurrected and reigning king, he is still praying. These words for us. Jesus is praying for us right now as we, as we, as we sit here. The Lord of, of heaven and earth is praying for you. Again, mind-blowing. It's kind of cosmic mind-blowing going on here. He has experienced this world's brokenness infinitely more than you ever will. And yet, he's there and, and bringing us in farther and deeper ways that will, to experience his love. And you know what? He's experienced that brokenness from you directly. You have let him down. You've disappointed him. You've turned your back. You've betrayed him. You would be the first person with a hammer and a nail if given the choice. And even in that reality, he's still pursuing you. He still loves you. He still prays for you. He still won't stop pursuing you. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of love that he has. So as we pray, we don't pray by ourselves. Sometimes it feels like when you pray, it's like, I'm just saying words. Really what's happening, your words are joining Jesus' words. He prays for us all the time. Your prayers are joining his. And this life that we get to live was bought at the price of his death. Jesus died so that we wouldn't be filled up with second best. Jesus died so we wouldn't be, um, so that in the darkness of our discontent, we can still seek him and be found in him, regardless of wherever we are, and live in the way that we've learned today. 